Hey guys, so I went to the New York International Auto Show the other day. I was walking around the auto show with a badge that said, Aaron Napperstack, The War on Cars. Thank you. Can you give me a welcome to the auto show? Oh, say welcome. Oh, welcome. <laughs> okay, back up, back up. How did you lie? Did no, you, you no, said, I told them. I'm like, I'm from the war on cars and I want to come to the auto show. And they're like, fine, come on in. I'm really surprised that you're not on some kind of no no drive list. Yeah, that doesn't yeah. sound like the most rigorous screening process they have over there. I think I might have been the only member of the press corps uh, to arrive by city bike. That All sounds right. quite possible. All right. Well, that is that is a very, very effective infiltration. I'm impressed. I would be worried that they're like, hey, this war on cars guy wants some press credentials. Let's get him in and then get him to a back room. Welcome to the War on Cars. Today, we are behind enemy lines. Aaron, as we said, infiltrated the New York International Auto Show. But beyond that, we are going to talk about just what we are up against. What is this massive industry that puts on this gigantic show? And how can we counter it with our own guerrilla action? But first, we need to fund some guerrilla action of our own. You can support us on Patreon by going to our website, thewaroncars.org, and clicking on Donate. We will send you stickers, T-shirts, and other nice rewards, and you will be the first to hear exclusive audio content. Every cent you contribute goes towards the production of this podcast, and we really appreciate everyone's support. Again, go to thewaroncars.org, click Donate, and we'll send you some awesome stuff. So, Aaron, why would the War on Cars be interested in risking life and limb to go to the auto show? So much about how our city's function is determined, you know, not by government, but by industry. And the auto show is one of the places where the future of our cities is is really being decided. This is an industry that has every intention of filling our city streets with the products they're showing off here. These are the cars that are going to be all around you when you're biking and walking and moving about your city for the next 10 years. So we should be paying attention. You know, if, if your mayor has like a climate goal that goes to 2030 or a vision zero goal that goes to 2025, well, these are the products that are going to be on the streets, you know, emitting carbon and squashing people. At a top speed of 203 miles per hour, the healthcare red eye leads of competition in the dust. And we take a peek on top of the hood. So, right off the bat, I stumbled into a presentation for this 1970s style uh, fossil fuel powered personal mobility technology called the Dodge Challenger. Hellcat Red Eye. Are you Madison? I'm Madison. She said you're queen of the Hellcats. Actually, I, I came up with that, but yeah, she said I, I should like talk that. to you. You like that? I'm a queen of the Hellcat. <laughs> queen of the Hellcat. That's yeah. me now. All right. What can you tell me about this vehicle? I can. So this is our new 2019 Challenger SRT Hellcat Red Eye. It's the most powerful and fastest muscle car available. The engine is a 6.2 liter Hemi V8. Uh, the engine boasts an incredible 797 horsepower and 707 pound-feet of torque. And you have a 0 to 60 of 3.4 seconds on this, too. If I'm looking for the most sinister Dodge, what would you suggest? Hellcat Red Eye, for sure. Hellcat Red Eye, absolutely. You know, we had the Demon back in 2018. Uh, people were really excited about the Demon. We, had, we sold 3,000 Demons. But now, the latest and greatest sinister, Hellcat Red Eye. And what makes it so sinister? What's awesome about it is it has the Demon engine, Demon supercharger. Um, we kept it in the sinister family, so it's still at all the heat management that people loved of the Demon are still in this vehicle. 
uh, but it's a little more street friendly now. Oh, well, what makes it more street friendly? Because it's actually like these cars sound like they would like terrify people on the street. I will say, I will say quickly, we can't unless after my script, I can't do any more interviews. Oh, so I we we just played out the script. Yes. Okay. Thank Stay you so much. Yeah, for, no appreciate problem. it. No other consumer product is marketed, I mean, except for guns, as sinister. And certainly no product that is designed to be used among other people. Like, this umbrella is really sinister. <laughs> right, Walk down they? Madison Avenue <laughs> like no other person. We've Don't sold, let people we've stand sold 3, in your way. demons. I know, right. the demons. I like that the demons were so popular, but we have to get even more sinister than the demons. I, it's, it really says something about how... They just have completely sort of fallen under their own spell. I mean, it's like they're, they don't even imagine that people might not want to drive around in a demon because I guess they do want to drive around in a demon. I like how the sales pitch is like, you know, 6.2 liter Hemi V8, 797 horsepower, 700 pounds of torque. As if like when I'm just trying to get around the city, I'm just like, oh, I wish I had 707 pounds of torque. Like that's a thing that people are apparently looking for. Yeah, I, I, I think that it's just like when torque has always struck me as one of those things that like no one actually knows what it means, but they just know that you like the more it. the more torque, the better, right? Yeah. Like yeah. That sound is our email inbox filling up with tons of people just who will the- define torque for us. Aaron, can you walk us through? What else did you see? Yeah, so one of my favorites at the show was uh, Subaru. They had this massive log cabin-like structure that it almost, it was designed to look like the entry to Yellowstone National Park or something. Subaru had actors uh, dressed up as park rangers doing skits about, you know, how great it is to drive a Subaru through America's, you know, most remote and pristine wildlands. <laughs> it was, it was, but it was just a mass. Like you really felt like you were entering, you know, like a place where you're going to find like Yogi Bear and and Boo Boo or something. Can you give me a sense of what's going on here for the podcast? Yeah. So this is Subaru Adventure Time. Uh, we are unveiling the new 2020 Outback, and this is our outdoors display inside. This is incredible. What do you think? What do you think it costs to put this up? If I had to guess, it was over six mil but i yeah oh yeah but you know we we have a lot of cool stuff going on in here it snows in here it uh we have a geyser eruption every hour a lot of really great things the floor changes with the backdrop so the scenery is always changing going to different national parks around the whole country uh subaru is actually partnered with the national parks foundation and um we are their biggest corporate partner so we're celebrating our time with them and keeping the uh, parks clean and healthy so this is a tribute to that wow. okay. environmental stewardship is so impressive keep, well, keep the parks healthy by driving your gas-powered car through it leave no trace except for the massive for, tire tracks that you're leaving everywhere as you forge a stream in your subaru outback so so after i heard about this after you posted the pictures of it aaron i immediately flashed on edward abbey who's like the great Uh, cranky and weird environmentalist. Um, And in 1968, Edward Abbey wrote a book called Desert Solitaire. He had been working as a ranger in national parks and was really horrified by what he saw uh, in the way that people use them. So this is 1968. He, part of the book is called Polemic Industrial Tourism and the National Parks. And he says, industrial tourism is a threat to the national parks, but the chief victims of the system are the motorized tourists. They are being robbed and robbing themselves. 
So long as they are unwilling to crawl out of their cars, they will not discover the treasures of the national parks and will never escape the stress and turmoil of those urban-suburban complexes which they had hoped, presumably, to leave behind for a while. It really, yeah. it really shows, we started with the Hellcat in cities. It kind of shows there is no corner of this country, of this earth, that is unspoiled by cars. If you're in a city, you're surrounded by cars. You go to a national park, you can kind of only experience it by cars, and they are just putting their tentacles into every every place that you can imagine. Well, I mean, it, I do feel like it's a, a suffocation, but I also think that this is another example of something we've talked about before, which is the liberal blind spot on cars. I, I think Subaru is very explicitly pitching its product not to people who want to terrorize people with their cars, but to people who love nature and who, oh, people yeah. who it's like recycle. The, it's like the car of like Park Slope in Berkeley and Tacoma Park. Right. Like Cambridge it's, and... it's good to have a Subaru, right? And, you know, and like the idea that, that like, no, a Subaru is still a car. It's still a freaking car, man. Like you, you are not virtuous just because you drive a Subaru, but that's what liberals think one, one more card the most interesting ones were the concept cars and uh there was one there um from the korean automaker kia this one had artificial intelligence technology that's supposed to be able to sense your mood and adjust the interior environment of the car accordingly actually that could be a very good innovation because the minute you feel any sort of rage it should just shut down pull over and a little voice should come on and say you should reconsider get a bike instead Basically, essentially, the car reads your emotions. Um, if you seem upset, it'll change the interior lighting. It'll put on some songs to either uh, get you out of that mood or play into that mood if you're sad, some sad songs. If uh, it seems like you're really happy and energetic, the mood uh, of the car essentially changes with your mood. So uh, it's, it's pretty incredible technology. To be 100% honest with you, I'm not sure 100% how it works yet. They didn't get into too many details about it, but that's the idea behind it. Because I was going to say, like, I don't know that I'm in touch enough with my feelings to know my mood half the time. So how does the habanero know how I'm feeling? I mean, it's I guess it's kind of like a girlfriend. You know, they got you figured out even when you don't have yourself figured out. So that sounds like a nursery school to me. Oh, the kids are really hopped up. Let's put on some uh, baby Mozart, you know, classical music. Turn the lights down a little bit. Maybe shine some star images on the ceiling of the preschool. This is actually kind of terrifying because this same kind of AI that presumably, I guess, they're using to like flash lights and music at you in your car is the same kind of AI that's going to be used to like figure out whether you're have a mental illness that's going to prevent you from doing a job. And like before you know it, this is going to be like technology that is used to surveil you in some pretty creepy ways. So, but hey, we don't 100% know how it works <laughs> right. yet. Yeah, we don't know how it works. What could possibly go wrong? They're talking about a car that can sense your emotions and sense when you're a little on edge and need, and you need to be calmed down a little bit. Let's remind everyone, you are operating a fucking car going perhaps 50, 60, 70 miles an hour, and the car senses when you are upset. And instead of just saying, hey, dude, slow down, pay attention to your surroundings, it just changes the lights. It's not the Headspace app on your phone that you can just put on a speaker as you fall off to sleep. It, you're in a car. You're operating a heavy piece of machinery. Yeah. And this is the technology they're giving you. Okay, and then these doors, what do you call that kind of door? What is that? What's going on there? So we call these the butterfly doors. Uh, unlike, you know, like a Lamborghini where they go a little bit more side and up, these go out and up. Um, kind of like a butterfly's wing, so that's why they call it that, the yeah. butterfly. 
It looks perfect, actually, for knocking bike commuters off of their bicycles as they go by. Yeah, that was kind of the design idea. Um, you know, annoying bicyclists riding by, and you just give them a quick knock with your butterfly door and call it an accident. That's terrible. <laughs> I don't ride a bike, so it's fine. I'm going to forgive this guy because he's been hired to do a job for a week, and we've all been in positions where we work on stuff that like we don't particularly like, but it pays the bills while we're moving on to that next thing that we want to do. But people actually do get killed this way. People get doored, they get thrown off of their bicycles, and they get crushed under the wheels of a car or truck. And here is something that is perhaps scripted into his response about how dangerous this thing is. And it's, ha-ha, I don't ride a bike. But, you know, you might kill someone. I mean, it, it, this is a real-world thing, right? This is a fantasy environment. The auto show is a fantasy theatrical production. But these products get used in the real world. And there are real-world stakes. I mean, for instance, here in New York City, uh, I think that uh, 10 people have been killed on bicycles uh, this, so far this year. There were only six at this time last year, and it's yeah. 10 now. There were 16 total uh, bike fatalities in all of New York City in 2018, and we're already up to 10 for 2019. Yeah, so this is, this is real. This is real people's lives. So as it happens, that same Friday morning that the auto show opened to the public in New York City, a well-known bike advocate in Washington, D.C., a guy named Dave Salovesh, was just sitting at an intersection on Florida Ave in D.C., just waiting for the traffic light to turn green when a speeding driver in a stolen van crossed the double yellow line and plowed into him. Just killed him instantly. I, Dave was always the person who was like, if you don't do something, somebody's going to die. <laughs> and, you know, that's very prescient um, because he's no longer with us. I talked to Alex Baca. She works for a D.C. area advocacy organization called Greater Greater Washington. And she was a friend and colleague of Dave's from her work in the world of D.C. bike advocacy. Dave, as just sort of a serial meeting goer and sort of a general civic agitator, uh, was certainly very present in the work that we were doing. I went on a lot of rides with him. I drank a lot of beers with him. And, like, he was somebody that I considered a friend. Doug, did you know this guy, Dave? So I didn't know him personally. I knew him in the way a lot of us know each other these days, which is through Twitter and online interactions. Um, and yeah, he was a really passionate, strident person. And I agreed with his philosophy that we ought to be doing more. He would very frequently talk about someone is going to die here. And um, he was not above kind of taking things into his own hands to see and show how things can be done. DC has a center running bike lane on Pennsylvania Avenue. Uh, it's dope. When you're in it, you look straight down at the Capitol. It's awesome. Um it's very powerful. Um, it was like completely unprotected and people you turned across it all the time. And it was horribly dangerous and actually kind of sucked to ride on, uh, views aside. Dave was furious about this. I believe he was commuting via it. And so, you know, he was very much like, Wob is not moving fast enough on this. We were all like, oh, it's complicated. You have to get permission from the council and you have to get permission from DDOT and you have to get permission from the Commission of Fine Arts because it's federal. And National Capital Parks and Planning probably has to be involved too. And like all of this other stuff. And we were like, it's hard. It's hard to get it protected. Um, it was hard to get it protected, but we didn't really do anything to really make that point. 
Dave did. He put out a bunch of red Solo cups one morning and was like, look at these fucking assholes turning across the bike lane, crushing the Solo cups and how unsafe this is, and took a bunch of photos. Dave kicked all of our asses into being a little bit more aggressive about that. And he also very easily visually demonstrated, like, why paint is not meaningful. There was a response when Dave died that um, that built on his own work that he had done with the Red Cups on Pennsylvania Avenue that really took off in a, a very meaningful way. I think we all think about what would happen if, if one of us got killed riding because that's a real possibility. And for Dave, um, his own work laid laid the foundation for what happened as a response. Right. So the beginning of the next week, the idea was born that there should be something that we eventually called the Red Cup Project. And the idea was to go out, take red solo cups and fill them with water, put them down on bike lanes and in spaces where we thought protection was needed, where paint wasn't adequate, and to do exactly what Dave demonstrated, to show how paint is not protection. Um, to act where cities were not acting. We posted this online. There was a little graphic, a little hashtag, and this exploded. So I did a demonstration here in New York. We'll put a link up to that. There were demonstrations in pretty much every major city you can think of here in the United States. The first one out of the gate was in Brisbane, Australia, because they got a head start on us um, in terms of time. And there were a couple European cities as well. And it turned into this amazing memorial for Dave and also a demonstration that worked in kind of two ways. So when I did the demonstration on a bike lane leading to the Manhattan Bridge here in Brooklyn, two things happened. One was that I just put down red solo cups and actually tomatoes as well. And in some cases, drivers gave them a pretty wide berth. So it just showed that even something as simple as a red visual on the bike lane would cause drivers to behave differently. But then, of course, eventually, within about 10 minutes, they got crushed by trucks taking turns over the bike lane and it showed how inadequate paint is because I posted on Twitter you know if you're disturbed to see this tomato crushed by the wheel of a truck imagine it's someone's head because those are the stakes it's not conceptual it's not a PowerPoint presentation it's not statistics on a chart it's not year over year fatalities going up or down it's people's lives it's people's bodies that are broken and destroyed when they interact with cars. Okay, so the week of Friday, April 19th, Friday, April 19th to the 26th, two things are going on. In Washington, D.C., a bike advocate is tragically killed by one of the automobile industry's products. And in response, in dozens of cities around the world, activists come together to do this Red Cup project. Meanwhile, in New York City, the International Auto Show is underway. And it's an economically and culturally powerful industry coming together to show off the products. In both instances, we have two really different groups, in a way, sort of presenting their vision for how they want city streets. So probably no one at the auto show knew a thing about Dave Salavesh and the Red Cup Project. And probably no one doing the Red Cup Project, except for us, was paying you know a second's worth of attention to the auto show. But in a way, it's like these two separate events that were happening simultaneously really represent an argument about the future of the city and who gets to decide what this future looks like and how do we get there? I don't know, what do you guys think? Well, 
I mean, part of me just gets really sad and feels really defeated because the juggernaut of the auto show, it's it's like the cultural equivalent of a Mack truck running over a tomato all the time. I mean, that's just the reality. Um, it completely drowns out and suffocates everything. And going back to that Edward Abbey quote, you know, you just, you just, realize this has been building and building and building. And I, I think that, that it's only getting worse and has gotten worse. And so there's part of me that becomes very dispirited. But then I try to remember that guerrilla social movements like the Red Cup Project actually also have tremendous power and they can build and build. And I do think that this movement has been building and and, you know, we can hope that it will build further. But I have to say that part of me just just feels really dispirited and defeated. I would say that there are kind of two things that I took away from this as someone who was involved in this. So the first part is that here you have this thing where people are spending $6 million on reproductions of national park lodges and, and giant digital screens and shiny cars, and they're spending millions and millions to set up these demonstrations. I went out and bought a pack of red solo cups for $4.99, a dozen tomatoes for probably like $4.99 as well, and put them out and was able to make a very effective demonstration. And other people did things across this country and across the planet, um, probably spending no more than $20 each to make this demonstration. The flip side of that is that in our conversations online on Twitter about how this project was going to work, there was some concern, right? Here we are, individuals going out, altering the streets in a tiny little way, and there was this question, well, if someone gets hurt because they slip over a tomato or or a red cup or a driver is distracted by the cup and hurt someone, I, we, the people who did this, could be liable. Someone could sue you and say, you put that cup there. And so that was a real concern. But Dodge can unleash the hellfire, devil, demon, 7,000. Red eye. The red eye, whatever. And it can run over children, people, fathers. And it's just like, oops, you know, we engineered our streets that way, and that's fine. Nobody is ever held accountable. No one's ever sued. No person at a Department of Transportation ever loses their job because 20 people died in a 10-block radius. Um, so there was that juxtaposition as well. That's what's crazy about the auto show is like, you know, you think about like, these are the products that they're putting out for the next 10 years and they're almost all burning fossil fuels. They're enormous cars, totally unsuited to the city. They're entirely unsafe. It's a delusional industry. It's out of its mind. And one of the things that was so weird about the auto show is I felt like, oh, I'm the only one in the entire Javits center who's seeing this. Like, I must be the crazy one. Like, we must be the crazy ones. Because the fact that, like, people people are there just, like, with their, you know, their children are crawling all over the gigantic, you know, GMC Yukon Glacier Melter. <laughs> <laughs> right. It must be very hard working in the press office for any of these companies or for the auto show itself to say, how are we going to get our products onto the nightly news? One thing I think of as an advocate is that, for America at least, Bike lanes and people taking to bikes and safe streets are a novelty. Um, They're new. They're not familiar with it. So we who did the Red Cup project kind of exploited that. We said, let's go out, make this big, striking visual statement with not a lot of money 
and I guarantee you we'll be able to get some newspapers to cover this. And they did, because it has all of the ingredients for a good feature. You have the horrible tragedy that this was spurred on by. You have citizens fighting City Hall by themselves, which every local news organization loves. And then you have the very visual aspect of it, which was the red cups and the smushed tomatoes. So it worked for, especially for local news. Um, and I think that's an advantage we, as the sort of guerrilla activists in the war on cars, have over the very entrenched auto industry, despite their millions of dollars that they can spend on, on marketing. I just think we need to pay more attention to this industry. You know, I think like as advocates, we tend to focus a lot on, on streets and DOTs, um, because that's, you know, it's our city government. It's like the people who are in charge of the streets and it's the people we can petition and we live in a democratic society still. And, but this, this industry is really important to focus on and getting them to change their products or starting to say like, look, we're just not going to let you use these kinds of products in our cities. If you, if you don't start to, if you don't start to design them for cities with the needs of cities in mind, we're just not going to allow them in cities. And we see this happening. I mean, cities in Europe now are, are pretty, pretty much banning cars from the city center. I think that's what the industry needs to understand is like, you know, we have power. We can get rid of them if we want. On that unexpectedly hopeful note, thank you for listening to this episode of The War on Cars. Help people find us by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. A very special thanks to our big supporters, Charlie G of Human Powered Law in Portland, Oregon, and here in New York City, the law office of Vaccaro and White. We want to hear from you. If you have questions, comments, or even just a stray idea, please record a voice memo and email it to us at thewaroncars at gmail.com. We might use it in an upcoming episode. This episode of The War on Cars was produced by Ben Elman and recorded by Josh Wilcox at the Brooklyn Podcasting Studio. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Goodyear. Our logo is by Danny Finkel of Crucial D Designs. Special thanks to Alex Baca for taking the time to talk to us. I'm Sarah Goodyear. I'm Doug Gordon. I'm Aaron Napperstack. And this is The War on Cars. Can you tell me about this bad boy? It's not a bad buy, it should, should be a luxury boy, uh, but the people here in the States are looking as, as it is a military car, but it has not been designed like that. But it can be, you can armor the car. It's called Karl Mein King, and uh, it costs about 2 million US dollars as a starting price. The bulletproof will about 2.2, so we're at about 10%. So what are we talking about? What are the craziest, most interesting things that clients are asking for? And uh, to have the, the door handles out of pure gold, inside the car pure gold and some diamonds, and the keys lined up with diamonds and other uh, gems. So one key could, would cost about 30,000 US, something like that. And they want to have the floor, their own logo on the uh, headrest, the, the sign of, of their country. So many strange ideas. Yeah, so what does it say when someone rolls up in a Carlman King? Like, what is that conveying? Uh, I think it gives them the impression to be strong, to be superior, and to be really different. So they will uh, be not as the, the normal human. So they feel that they are very successful people and uh, they want to invest they are able to buy this car at least, so they are rich people and strong.